Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. We all have that curmudgeonly relative who, at the holiday table, laments the end of the good old days when social media wasn't a thing and everyone knew everyone, people answered their doors when someone knocked on them, and business was done face to face. In some ways, he's right. Digital technology has made job searching, hiring, college applications, and reference letters much less personal uh, than these activities were 50 years ago. But history tells us that, thankfully, your grumpy and probably slightly racist relative is mostly (laughs) wrong. Even in 2016, a recent survey of over 3,000 employees showed that as many as 85% of jobs were obtained through personal networking. Mm -hmm. What's more is that employment agencies and classified job ads have a much longer history than you might think. 300 years ago, long before the advent of the interwebs, someone else's curmudgeonly relative sat at the holiday table bemoaning the decline of personal interaction. Today, I'm giving all a sneak peek into some of the research I'm doing for my close-ish-to-done dissertation, and Sarah is along for the ride. Um, Now, I know what you're thinking. Marissa, aren't you dissertating about boobs or something? That is correct. I am indeed. Um, But one of the most important parts of understanding the life experiences of wet nurses in the 18th century is understanding the transformation of their trade. This bit of research has led me to the brief history of early modern employment agencies. And don't worry, we'll talk about boobs and class and race and poverty and all the fun stuff, too. Good. I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Starting around 1600, most of Northwestern Europe, notably England, Scotland, the Netherlands, Northwestern France, Northwestern Germany, and Scandinavia, underwent rapid structural urbanization. In 1500, there were only 30 cities in all of Northwestern Europe, and none of them contained more than 80,000 people. In 1600, there were still only 30 cities in Northwest Europe, and all of them remained small except for one, London. Between 1600 and 1800, the number of cities more than tripled from 30 to 105. By 1800, there were five cities which had more than 80,000 people, and London had reached the 1 million mark. Now, this was not just natural increase. Birth rates were actually low in early modern cities, and mortality was high. 
These many massive urban centers grew as Europeans fled the countryside in search of work in the city. So as cities grew, countrysides suffered depopulation. Prior to the depopulation of the countryside, rural areas had been good places for people to find work. In fact, early versions of job fairs called hiring fairs, statute fairs, or colloquially mop fairs <laughs> were held annually in November in many market towns, most famously in Yorkshire towns like Hornsey and Pocklington. I just included them because they're great. I just love the names. I am. That's it. I'm moving to Pocklington. <laughs> James and I have said for years and years and years that we want to move to Yorkshire because we, a bunch of the shows that we watch, the like the British shows that we watch, mm-hmm. are set in Yorkshire. And it's uh-huh. just so beautiful. Like, it's so green and hilly and it's beautiful. So maybe we should move to Pocklington. Yeah, Pocklington. So this was all part of a long tradition of regulated labor in England. The 1351 Statute of Laborers established these fairs after the Black Death caused massive labor shortages in agricultural communities. The Statutes of Artificiers in 1563, which we've mentioned, I think, a few times um, for its attempt to control women's reproduction, also set a day each year when Shire magistrates, um, they were hobbits, uh, would set pay rates and employment conditions for the following year. Then, at the mop fair, male and female laborers would gather to negotiate employment arrangements for the following year. As large gatherings of people are wont to do, these mop fairs usually devolved into huge parties with feasts, drinking, dancing, and other recreational pastimes, uh, dot, 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 which basically we mean sex. (laughs) As Europe became more urban, so did the people who lived there. And urbanites developed new modes of arranging employment. Structural urbanization, which is the process that Sarah described above, illustrates the physical movement of people from one area to another. But we're interested in behavioral urbanization. Behavioral urbanization refers to the process of change in people's lifestyles, modes of conduct, and points of view as their living environments change. In 1500, there were 3.4 million people in all of Northwestern Europe who lived urban lifestyles. So this is no uh, small number. It's That's kind of a lot of people and probably more than most people would think um, mm-hmm. in 1500. Definitely. But by 1800, there were 12.2 million urbanites in Europe and 1 million of them lived in the same city, London. The city was populated almost entirely by migrants and foreigners who were underemployed in the countryside or in their place of origin. In a society that's assumed to have operated on face-to-face communications, letter writing, and complex personal networks, how did people new to the city secure employment? They knew few people, usually didn't have marketable skills, and changed jobs frequently because of fluctuating markets. Most ordinary Londoners struggled to find places, as they called them, or jobs, because they lived in an urban market saturated by potential labor as migrants continued to arrive. Keep in mind, this is before or right at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which created droves of unskilled jobs for migrants. So it was tough. Unsurprisingly, then, workers and employers began to invest in organized employment streams, which promised to connect them with prospective employers. Today, we call these employment agencies or possibly temp agencies. Workers and employers also began using the burgeoning newspaper industry to place classified advertisements to find places or to fill vacancies, respectively. 
These activities evolved slowly, spurred by increasing need, sometimes even desperation. In societies with few literate people, town criers were used to spread news of job openings, items for sale, lost items, or even missing people. Um, Can I pause for a second? And, like, I also just want to point out, like, Marissa wrote this episode. Um, Town criers were a real thing? Yeah. They just walk up and down the... Yeah, with a bell did you think and... that was a made-up Why wouldn't they be a real I don't know, I just, I, I mean, not that, I, mean, I don't mean to say that I thought that it was fake. I just, I always just thought, like, that just seemed so funny. Yeah, I just can't well... picture them being like, and now, it's like NPR, <laughs> but on the foot, right? Like, yeah. Joe Smith is hiring a dairy maid. Yeah, no, that's. Hear ye, hear ye. Well, I think it was kind of unofficial, and I think that there was sometimes just men who were like, hey, I don't have a job, and I'm just meandering around anyway. How about you give me a shilling, and I'll, you know. Announce Announce your, your, your stuff. Weird. Yeah. I don't think it was like. Sally always... is having a yard sale. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So it was a real thing. Correct. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Sorry, sorry. That was an aside. Mostly to educate me, and I'm dumb. Uh, In 1550, only 16% of Brits were literate. This number improved to 53% by 1650. These figures are skewed since they include urban and rural areas. In cities, literacy rates were usually much higher. In 1750 London, as many as 92% of men and 74% of women were able to read. In Amsterdam, the literacy rate hovered around 85% in the 1780s. This new generation of literate city folk developed new modes of sharing information beyond gossip and the town crier telling people where where the yard sales were. After 1650, post offices, coffee houses, pubs, and newspaper offices began to display notice boards where locals could pin announcements about place openings, lost items, goods for sale, or laborers looking for work. The descriptions were typically brief and included a means to get in touch with a poster. Usually, respondents uh, to a notice approached the proprietor of the establishment where the notice was posted, and then he or she would tell them uh, how to get in touch with the author of the notice. Sometimes posters left either direct contact information, such as an address where they lodged, or indirect contact information, such as the name or address of a local artisan or professional who could serve as an intermediary. This anonymized the hiring process. People were more likely than ever to hire someone they'd never met or enter the employ of a proprietor they'd never heard of. As migrants flocked to early modern cities, this anonymized method of finding employment became increasingly common and complex. Migrants were unlikely to have helpful contacts in their new city. This was a common complaint among city dwellers. In June 1740, the London Magazine ran an editorial proposing an intelligence office for marriage. (laughs) That is, my friends... A dating service. Um, If Londoners were willing to use anonymized dating services, it's unsurprising that systemized and anonymized forms of place and servant hunting also became more popular. This was also true of colonial American cities. New York, Boston, and Philadelphia were North America's largest cities, but in the 18th century they were tiny demographically and geographically in comparison to those in Europe. But they were growing more rapidly than their European counterparts and had very high population densities. 
In Philadelphia, for example, the average population density was an incredibly high 50,000 per square mile in 1800. This is close to the population density of Manhattan today. So even though American cities were small, they were urban in character and their inhabitants had been behaviorally urbanized by 1700. Unlike in England, in the American colonies, migrants to the cities were usually far from home and knew no one. Until 1815, Philadelphia was the primary destination of immigrants to the North American continent. But the port cities like Boston and New York were also growing rapidly. In this sense, these small American cities were even more cosmopolitan than European cities, where migrants tended to have friends or family a short distance outside the city limits. We also can't forget that there were several sources of unfree and exploitative labor. Ships full of European indentured servants, as well as pools of enslaved blacks for sale or short-term hire, and recently freed blacks looking for work. These fluctuating and rootless populations prevented the development of personal networks and made it hard for workers to find work and for employers to fill vacancies. Philadelphian Elizabeth Drinker and her sister Mary Sandwith reportedly struggled to find and keep, quote, good servants. In Elizabeth's diary, she excitedly noted the arrival of English ships carrying fresh waves of servants and described Mary's trips to the wharf hunting for men and women to fill their constant vacancies. So I bring up America um, only because in my dissertation, I'm doing a, a comparative dissertation and I'm comparing Philadelphia with London. And I have found that um, even though American colonial cities were much smaller and had this very different relationship to the economy than um, the Metropole did, their demands for employment agencies were actually quite similar. Um, Both sets of populations were uh, kind of at a loss for how to find out that employment intel. They just had no way to do it. Systematized employment streams initially took the form of intelligence offices. These offices of intelligence served many purposes at once. They are arguably the grandfathers of classified intelligence networks, newspaper journalism, advertising agencies, employment agencies, and several other things. Intelligence offices initially produced publications which spread intelligence around the city. But they were also brick-and-mortar points of contact where readers could follow up leads that were printed in their bulletins. Intelligence offices became popular in London and other major British cities, Bristol, Manchester, Leeds, and Edinburgh, at the beginning of the 18th century. They began appearing in cities and British colonies such as Philadelphia, Boston, Charleston, and New York after 1750, but there were very few of them in British America until the 1780s. This was also the time when American newspapers reached maturity. This accident of timing may have shaped American intelligence agencies in compelling ways. While European offices functioned independently alongside newspapers for decades, American intelligence offices were more likely to be contained within the newspaper industry. The first intelligence office was established in London in 1637 by John Innes. Innes secured from monarch Charles I, a 41-year patent, which gave him sole rights to, quote, enter the names of all masters and mistresses and servants and of things lost and found, etc., within the cities of London and Westminster and three miles distant, end quote. They, I love how often 18th century and 17th century writers put etc. in there. Like, it'll yeah. be like the super important, like, you know, bill going through parliament, and it'll be like, blah, 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 et cetera. Right. You know, it's so <laughs> you'd funny. think that you'd need to be a little bit more yeah, specific like, than be specific, that. Right. right. Um, so basically, uh, 
Ennis planned to keep a register of employers seeking workers, servants seeking places, and items which were lost and found around the city. Londoners who sought servants, employment, or a lost watch could visit the Office of Intelligence and consult its register of leads. It's entirely unclear how Ennis's intelligence agency made money. He likely sold access to the register in some way, perhaps selling subscriptions. He may have even sold space in the register, um, so if you wanted to place an item on the register, you'd have to pay for it. But it's unclear if anyone would have been willing to pay for that service at this point, because this is like a brand new thing. Mm-hmm. And nobody's heard of this before. Mm-hmm. So we have zero clue about how it actually worked. Weird. Interesting. Towards the end of the 1600s, intelligence offices more commonly published an intelligence bulletin, which were pasted on posts and notice boards and circulated among the city residents by hand. This marriage between intelligence office registers and newspaper print may have begun in Germany sometime around the 1670s. Wilhelm Baron von Schroeder consulted Emperor Leopold about the establishment of an intelligence chamber, which would publish intelligence bulletins in the style of newspapers every 7 to 14 days. His proposal is the first record we have of an intelligence office designed to circulate publications. But von Schroeder was a famed mercantilist who envied the growing British mercantile juggernaut. He often related reports from London notables to Emperor Leopold so English economic practices could be implemented in Vienna. It's likely that he borrowed this idea from ordinary Londoners who were already circulating their registers in an informal capacity. We just haven't uncovered any record of those activities. Right. I just want to mention that because just because that's the first record of it doesn't mean that people weren't doing it for hundreds of years. Right. We're not totally sure. Um, For several decades, so uh, approximately 1680 to 1720, I'm trying to go roughly chronologically here, um, the London intelligence industry circulated publications separately from the newspaper media. So there was very little crossover until the 1720s when intelligence offices began to purchase space in London newspapers. And this move made sense. Why incur the burdensome cost of printing your own bulletin when the local newspapers were willing to sell space to whoever was willing to pay? This move saved London intelligence offices oodles of money, and it also made them dependent on the newspaper medium. By mid-century, this made intelligence offices particularly vulnerable to the vagaries of public opinion. There were several competing intelligence offices operating in London, which had been advertising the labor of their clients in London newspapers since the 1720s. In attempts to edge out their competitors, they began rebranding as register offices and statute halls, all vying for different but overlapping target markets. The first mention of a register office in London newspapers dates to 1742. It advertises the opening of the general register office within the piazza, I love that word, Me too. of the Royal Exchange. The ad gives us an idea of how these agencies were reinventing themselves. It reads... Whatever is necessary for the public to be informed of or inquire after, such as bank or other notes, watches, or any other goods lost, stolen, or found, many of which are never heard of by the owners for want of those who find them or to whom they are offered to sale or pawn, knowing who they belong to, which is registered at this office, may be informed gratis, and warnings may be sent to all goldsmiths, watchmakers, and pawnbrokers." Also, estates, annuities, offices, merchandise, etc. may be sold by being registered. 
Since this office being at the exchange, it may become a kind of market for the intercourse of such as have ready money purchase and those that will sell cheap. I, I, here's something about the 18th century. What? How did anybody understand what the f- anybody else was talking about? I, I know. They, they're so roundabout. I mean, Everything. It makes, that makes Everything. zero sense. So basically, okay, and I'll translate. Thank you. I, have I think a few, that's a good idea. I have a few long quotes, so I'll translate because I'm used to this. Um... <laughs> So basically they're saying, you know, if you lose anything, um, they're, they're kind of saying, it's kind of like an infomercial, like, have you ever lost anything? And no one, no one, you can't, you can't figure out who found it. In the background, there's a guy yeah. like, who's, <laughs> like, who trips clumsily, dramatically. <laughs> clumsily losing shit. And then, um, you know, well, we have a solution. Just register your item and we'll notify all the pawnbrokers. So then if someone goes to pawn your goods... They'll notify you. They'll know it's stolen. Blah, blah, blah. Got it. Got it. I don't know why they can't just say Say it. (laughs) Um, But, and then they also say that, uh, you know, that you can get a mortgage. You can negotiate um, sale of estates and things like that through the register. And it continues. So this is the end of uh, the quote that Sarah was just reading. Don't worry. I will also translate. It says, quote, persons wanting to let or borrow money on mortgage or other security may have their business negotiated at this office, and secrecy may be depended on in the affair. Farms, houses, lodgings, etc. may be let, since any person may be informed what is registered and take such as suits each one's conveniency. And when let, it is hoped the landlords will give notice to the office to prevent needless inquiry, uh, end quote. So they're basically saying... So the plan is that we will put this on the register if, you know, someone is trying to lease an apartment. And when the apartment is taken, the landlord will tell us and we'll take it off the register. And then you don't need to go to this landlord's house and say, do you still have that apartment for sale? So basically, this is, they're trying to advertise their services yeah, yeah. in a very commercial kind of way, yeah. but just in a very 18th century roundabout, we don't know how to write way. <laughs> So you can see this general register office is trying to give readers an idea of the possible services they can provide. They wanted to focus more on bringing parties together for transactions or other services revolving around making, spending, or recovering lost money. Once intelligence offices and register offices started advertising in newspapers regularly, we as historians can learn more about them. Thankfully, many newspapers were saved for posterity and conveniently digitized. Random 18th century bulletins by any number of ordinary intelligence businesses? Not so much. The General Register Office, for example, charged one shilling for clients to register something. This included a notice being sent out to local establishments to be on the lookout for stolen or lost items. They charged another shilling if the client wanted their item advertised in the local newspaper. This tells us that they have some special working relationships with the local papers because for ordinary folks, a classified advertisement would cost three shillings on its own. So they were probably able to negotiate super low rates with newspapers since their clients would then have a vested interest in reading that paper above all others. The General Register Office was open for business from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. <laughs> Banker's hours. <laughs> like, really short. I know. Before and after hours, clients were encouraged to go to the Amsterdam Coffee House, where the proprietor would take register entries and advertisements while the office was closed. This was probably another negotiated deal. The Amsterdam Coffee House likely did this labor for free while the register office was closed because it brought in a steady stream of customers. Seems like a pretty... 
you know, straightforward deal. Right. So this is, I mean, this is all kind of, the reason I include those things are just sort of because there's this commercial revolution going on. Yeah. People are learning how to, like, market and do these different things. And a lot of people who are more familiar with modern history don't realize that people have figured this out so early, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in the U.S., the the Industrial Revolution hadn't happened yet. So I'm just kind of making it clear that um, these are very commercialized societies. Mm-hmm. Register offices did not always take this form. Each agency carved out their own niche within the intelligence business. The choice of name, so intelligence office, register office, or statute hall, was a marketing choice rather than a strict division of services. So just because it's called statute hall doesn't mean it offers this service and register, you know, it's, it's all just sort of marketing gimmicks. The first reference to a statute hall in London newspapers dates to 1763. It announces the opening of Statue Hall by Tottenham Court Road. It's just called Statue Hall. It's not the Statue Hall. It's not John Statue Hall. It's just <laughs> called Statue Hall. And that was also a marketing technique because they were like, it is Statue Hall. Like as if mm-hmm. it is the only one. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. There was like hundreds. Hmm. This establishment pretty obviously captured a different market than register offices. So this is really short. And this is how they kind of advertise their services. Um, The proprietors give notice they shall, for the future, open their hall two days and every week from 11 to 2 o'clock for hiring servants and apprentices every Monday for women and girls only and every Thursday for men and boys only. Several tradesmen want apprentices on each day. So basically, they're only going to be open two days for a few hours each. And you can only get certain people on certain days. and Yeah. Right. This was obviously a very different venture than the register office we mentioned earlier. Statute halls typically made money by charging employers for the convenience of being able to show up at the statute hall at a given time and be guaranteed a servant for hire. It eliminated the inconvenience of going servant hunting, like Elizabeth Drinker and her sister were forced to do in Philadelphia. Statute halls also, at least supposedly, did some of the footwork that would otherwise need to be performed by employers every time they took on a new servant, checking their references, negotiating a minimum wage, and ensuring their basic suitability for employment. This theoretically assured employers that they weren't unwittingly hiring disabled, pregnant, or criminal servants. I say supposedly and theoretically because statute halls were often accused of failing to perform basic vetting, letting all kinds of transgressive characters fall through the cracks. Heaven forbid. Statute halls also, controversially, made money by charging the servants for the service of setting them up with an employer. This practice became incredibly problematic, and we'll come back to that soon. Competing agencies, uh, intelligence offices, register offices, and statute halls, all of them, took to attacking each other through newspaper advertisements in the 1760s. The owner of the London Statute Hall in Church Lane placed the following advertisement in the public advertiser um, on May 27, 1767, letting Londoners know why he started his new venture. And this is like, he's throwing some serious shade, and it's just amazing to me that... Like, he's a professional, and this is, like, considered professional at a certain time. It's kind of like if someone now, you know, like, got fired from somewhere, and they're, like, shit-talking their employer on Facebook or mm-hmm, whatever, mm-hmm. and you think, oh, that's, like, kind of inappropriate or whatever, but people will do it. But So it's kind of like that. People okay? will do it. People will do it. 
So, um, quote, to extricate the public from the many impositions practiced by keepers of intelligence offices and to open a public market for this purpose was the chief motive that introduced me at a very great expense to build these two halls in order that every master and mistress might at a very small expense provide themselves with proper servants. This soon induced several of the office keepers to change their motto from register office to statute halls, which are now too numerous in this metropolis. Therefore, both parties would do well to consider that more places than one opened at one time. It's contrary to their own interests, which I have often repeated in my former advertisements and believe now is visibly perceived to be true by great numbers. So basically, translation, he's saying, I built these buildings, these statue halls, with my own money at great expense because I care deeply about masters and mistresses being able to find good servants. And I'm providing this service to you, unlike all the other intelligence offices, which they're all crooks. Mm. In London, this hostile environment was fodder for satire by London engravers like John Goldar, Philip Daw, and Thomas Rowlandson. We'll put some of these etchings in the blog post, you know, so that you can take a look at what we're talking about here. All three types of agencies were accused of swindling their clients. The agency depicted in Goldar's etching bears the name Cheetal's Statue Hall. Employment agencies were known to charge their unemployed clients an entire day's wages, two shillings, at a time when the majority of working people spent one-third of their income on bread and an additional one-sixth of their income on basic lodging. Yeesh. The expense would have been justified if their services guaranteed employment, but this wasn't always the case. In most cities around the Atlantic Rim, the economies were labor-rich. On July 12, 1764, a writer for the London Gazetteer and New Daily Advertiser estimated that intelligence offices drew 50, 60, or 70 workers per day and, you know, took all of their shillings, while very few of them were selected by an employer on any given day. Several agencies were criticized for manufacturing false characters for their clients who were otherwise undesirable. They were also accused of failing to vet the employers who subscribed to their services, even though this was one of their primary functions. Workers were unable to trust that the agency would not connect them with abusive or miserly employers. Sir John and Henry Fielding abandoned the private employment agency business after it became clear that market forces rendered them either unsuccessful or exploitative. The Fieldings and their partner, Saunders Welsh, established the Universal Register Office in London in 1749. The competitive and exploitative nature of the business made the Fieldings incredibly unhappy. So in 1761, they left the business to their clerk and got out of the intelligence game. The Fieldings later proposed a bill in Parliament which sought to regulate intelligence offices. As is often the case, the bill was initially proposed because the powerful and wealthy were fed up with the state of affairs. And that's just me being cynical. Mm. Um, So, you know, there were lots of problems for workers. uh, Right. And they had been complaining about it for decades. Right. But then finally, wealthy people who were actually hiring people from these places started complaining. And then they were like, we need to take care of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typical, right? Right. Um, So, quote, we hear frequent complaints of the dissatisfied temper and covetousness of servants and the exorbitant wages they usually demand. Now, it seems very probable that a proper attention to their characters, which once again means references, Uh would make a great alteration in that particular. It would render them more modest in their demands and would teach them to look rather for services in which they could foresee a likelihood to continue long than one where they might get the most plunder. 
it is well known that many of the evils generally complained of have been occasioned by the bad practices carried on by register offices. The bill goes on to describe their worst offense. The practice in the common register office of deceiving poor, deluded female servants particularly claims attention, as it is a grand source of infinite mischief. Those offices can any time procure them places. Their behavior to their employers becomes intolerable, and they are discharged without character, again, references. They again have recourse to the register office and with the help of a false character get into another. So don't worry, everyone. They're also slightly concerned with the welfare of these female servants. <laughs> slightly. Um, this part of the bill um, is the most bizarre part to me. And I think I think hopefully I don't need to translate these. These are a little easier reading. Do I you think, think so, yeah. Um, so, quote, and this is also just a short one. Quote, but as this cannot long be carried on when their faces become familiar, they, from fatal necessity, become a prey to their own passions, the pimp and the debauchee. And that is one of the chief causes which throw so many abandoned women on the town. If register offices are necessary, as perhaps they are, they ought to be under some better regulation and not to be left at liberty to impose a profligate woman or a villain upon a family where one or the other may prove the destruction of it. That's right, folks. Parliament was worried that the awful practices of register offices were not only a bane to wealthy employers, but they were also making female servants into prostitutes. Now, there was some truth to this in the sense that poor and resourceless women often went in and out of the sex trade to make ends meet. But somehow, I feel like Parliament was not all that concerned about the fate of these women. Mm -hmm. The bill emphasizes that their fate is burdensome on the town and that they destroyed the families who employed them. There was very little concern about how sex work shaped their lives. And this just, like, kind of makes me grumpy because so few people cared about the actual feelings of poor people in the 18th century. Right. Yeah. Criticisms towards employment agencies do not appear to have hindered the industry, but as the century progressed, servants were increasingly likely to invest in their own classified advertisements looking for open places. Classified advertisements emerged as an alternative to what people were beginning to perceive as ineffective and exploitative employment agencies. But just as anonymized employment networks continue to function next to old personal networks, register offices and statute halls continued to function alongside classified ads placed by servants themselves. This was partly due to the economics. By 1790, the cost to run a single ad for a single day ranged from 3 shillings 6D to 5 shillings 6D, depending on length and placement. Considering the average laborer earned 40 to 50 shillings annually, placing an ad would have cost the equivalent of three to four weeks' wages. Granted, statute halls also took servants' money without finding them places. But since an advertisement was more expensive than a day at the statute hall, many servants still gambled on the statute hall. So our listeners might be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with wet nursing? Good question. <laughs> I was wondering so, the same. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I came across this little slice of history when I was collecting classified ads placed for and by wet nurses in London and Philadelphia. And um, as it turns out, wet nurses were among the droves of unskilled workers who flocked to cities looking for work. And I wanted to know how this discreet group of people were impacted by these labor changes, because frankly, their stories are compelling, largely untold, and important to understanding how we perceive women even today. 
Um, so something I want our listeners to understand is that wet nurses didn't come to the city already planning on being a wet nurse. More often than not, they migrated to the city in search of a domestic service position, um, but somewhere along the way, they became pregnant outside of wedlock, um, abandoned by their lovers, and made the arguably smart choice to leverage their assets, which would be their boobs. Nice. <laughs> Many times their infants passed away, but just as often wet nurses surrendered their children to poor relief agencies. So how did someone who was newish to the city with few family or friends find a family who had an infant in need of breast milk who could afford the wages, room, and board of a wet nurse? See, these people would not have been in the same circles. Right. So how do so they how, find each other? Right. Right. And yeah. normally it would be personal networks like, oh, my aunt used to be your cook right. or whatever. Yeah. But these people are new to the city. They don't right. have those personal networks. One way was by placing classified ads. The first wet nurse ad in London was placed in the 1730s. Wet nursing advertisements increased as the century progressed. By the 1790s, some dailies were publishing several wet nurse advertisements every day. The exponential growth of employment agencies and job classifieds between 1750 and 1815 suggests that personal networks were no longer effective for everyone in those places. But buying ad space was a considerable investment. As we mentioned earlier, this could cost several weeks' wages for somebody who was obviously already unemployed. Wet nurses probably saw other avenues of procuring a place, and householders likely saw other avenues of procuring wet nurses before they placed classified ads. Right, so this is probably not the starting point. This is probably placing a classified ad is like, hey, I'm super desperate. Yeah. Or maybe, like, sometimes you might have been a wet nurse already and your employer says, hey, I'll place this ad for you, like, as a gift for being such a great Mm. servant. Sometimes that happens. Yeah, that makes sense. Employment agencies were an alternative strategy for these women. I came across many register office ads that basically listed a bunch of people looking for places. So day laborers, footmen, scullery maids, nurses, clerks, wet nurses. Um, I also noticed that many of those people looking for places did not find jobs after the first advertisement ran because the same clients appear again and again. And so I wanted to know how women chose whether they'd place an advertisement on their own or whether they'd subscribe to a register office. Some of the problems with register offices that we mentioned earlier, so their dishonesty and exploitative natures, Mm -hmm. suggest that employment agencies offered wet nurses in particular some important advantages. Many of these wet nurses were poor, unmarried, uneducated, unskilled, and what many of their contemporaries considered to be fallen women. So employment agencies could theoretically rehabilitate these women into suitable servants. They had the resources to fabricate good references for them. So these references, who most employers would consult in person, um, could feign familiarity with a wet nurse and tell some sob story about how she was a respectable married woman whose husband went off to sea or whatever, and Mm -hmm. she's not like a fallen woman. Mm, Okay. And then the prospective employer would be like, great, she sounds great, you know, and hire her. Yeah. Wet nurses actually did this. Marissa has read many petitions written by women surrendering their children to the Foundling Hospital in London. These women told stories to the hospital designed to cultivate sympathy toward their situation so that they would take their child. But everyone required references, and the hospital sent fact checkers to see each reference in person to ask whether the applicant was a suitable object of charity. That seems bonkers. Like, who has the... 
Who and has then, the time and the resources to, like, send fact checkers? But These are, like, rich white men. What I will say, I kind of, sorry to interrupt my the flow here, but um, somebody asked me at a conference recently, we were talking about the pensions and, and how difficult it was often for, like, a veteran to apply for a pension. And, you know, they were, they were always, you know, accused of fraud or whatever. And somebody mm-hmm. was like, well, but they probably weren't, like, checking, right? And I was, and, and I was like, oh, oh, no, they were. Like, they had... <laughs> Oh, they were checking. Yeah, they had people that were employed by the Pension Bureau who went out and investigated people, like followed them, tailed them to make sure that they were actually disabled. So it does not actually surprise me. As much as I say that this is bonkers, it doesn't actually surprise me that they had people who were doing this. Right, and they were very organized about it. They wrote their – they would take the petition that the woman wrote to Mm -hmm. the founding hospital to wherever they were going to check on the reference and they would write notes of what the person said about them on the back of it. So on the back of every petition, you have the investigator writing down, okay, this person says that, yeah, she was married or this person says she and this guy pretend to be married, but they're definitely not and she's like a whore. Jeez, wow. So I'm going to add up until the 1960s and early 1970s in the U.S., Somebody would come and check in people's houses if there was, like, a man living in the house. So even if it was, like, a boyfriend or something like like that, if you were applying for welfare benefits, they would come in, like, in the middle of the night to see if there was a man sleeping in your house. And if there was, then you would get kicked off of welfare because, obviously, you had a man to support you and your your children. And so you'd get kicked out. So, yeah. They, yeah. they still check. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, in mine that I'm about to do, I'm going to talk about how somebody was calling to check on some bullshit about me and, like, kick mm-hmm. me off the welfare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know that, <laughs> I know that like, workers' compensation, they, they do something similar. I mean, it's not, you know, that, obviously, but they do, like, they will have private investigators tail people who are applying for workers' comp to see, like, if they actually are as disabled as they right. say. Right. So, like... This has a very long and interesting history. I'm just, I, I just yeah. had to pause there and say that because I, I find this really fascinating. Um, anyway, so there are so many petitions which are refuted by references, and there are even more references who admit their complicity in hiding a woman's past transgressions just so that she can gain uh, employment, which you know, makes sense. I mean, right. helping your friend, right? Right, exactly. This was really a common thing. It's kind of like you know, faking a resume, you know, Mm -hmm. you kind of expand, like you put things on your CV that maybe, you know, put a couple of those book reviews on there that are just for like, you know, lame (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Oh, I have book reviews that I don't even put on my CV. I think it's like, no, I'm just kidding. No, I think it's like a fake. So I have this app here 58% of employers um, today have caught people lying on resumes. 58%? And my my boss who works in higher ed, because I am a GA in the grad school, she um, told me that she had to go to some seminar about academic integrity Uh and um, when it came to the application process. And they told her a stat that something like if... Uh, everybody who said that they graduated from Harvard actually had graduated yeah. from Harvard. There would be like four million people who who couldn't possibly have gone to Harvard <laughs> or something That's wild. ridiculous. And I guess it's really common, like in um, India, uh, where you could just like walk on the streets and be like, "Hey, here's a Harvard diploma," yes, and they'll like yeah. put your name on it or whatever. I have heard of like diploma mills where like you can just kind of like get fake diplomas, and they'll like if you you know, submit your application someplace and say that you went to blah, blah, blah university and you need a transcript. Like there are places, there are like fraudulent places where you right, can get like fake transcripts. transcripts. Uh, but that to me, I'm like, 
oh my gosh, like you're going to get caught so easy, dude. Like, why would you do that? But no, they do get caught. So. But there is a phenomenon in academia of, of like padding your CV. And that's not lying. That's, you know, I did this thing when I was an undergrad. And so I'm going to put that on my CV, even though right. like you should. It's put stuff, arguably yeah, you not relevant. Put stuff from your undergrad on, on your CV. Unless it was like right. something really you were the Fulbright or something, you know, mm-hmm. um, we all try to do that to a certain extent. Mm hmm. Um, Anyway, the 18th century public were aware of this uh, part of the trade, this kind of fraud, right? Physician George Armstrong lamented in 1783, he said this, A good wet nurse is not always to be had, especially in or near great cities, where so many of them are given to drinking and other vices, and the worst of them will fall upon means of securing a good character. Families were particularly nervous about this possibility for deception because this woman was being hired to breastfeed their child, right? I mean, if she was a loose woman, she could have a venereal disease. She could be immoral. She could be an alcoholic. She could be unfit to be around children. Or even worse, you know, she could be mentally ill. One- worse according to them, not according oh, to Oh, yes, us. of course. <laughs> I mean, from, from their be- perspective. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, one physician, an opponent to the wet nurse trade, wrote, when wet nurses go mad, the tiny bodies of innocent infants pay for it. <laughs> yeah. So this anxiety about deception is critical to my argument about the ways that wet nurses and their bodies were treated. Householders were told um, by physicians and authors of advice manuals to demand sobriety, honesty, discretion, conscientiousness, patience, good humor, and friendliness in a wet nurse. And they were urged to avoid women who were unchaste or gossipy or anxious or flighty or particularly passionate um, or melancholy, which would be depressed. Um, They were told to avoid unmarried women, women who suffered from chronic want or women married to abusive husbands. These details about a woman's personality, lifestyle, and family situation were easy to uncover through social networks when prospective wet nurses were introduced to householders by mutual acquaintances. For centuries, London families with resources had inquired among friends, neighbors, and business contacts when searching for servants. Workers in London inquired among their social and familiar networks for open places. But how exactly could prospective employers ascertain this intel if their prospective wet nurse was a stranger to them, which was increasingly the case? There were several factors that householders took into account when evaluating women for employment as a wet nurse, but their impression of a prospective wet nurse's character was increasingly influenced by an inspection of her body. So as an alternative to social knowledge that they would gather from like a personal network, householders sought information by inspecting a wet nurse's body. Mm. So with the help of medical manuals and conduct lit Um, Householders read wet nurses' bodies for signs of their health, their character, and their past behavior. So, yes, they had them stripped down so that they could inspect their bodies and gather clues about her character or her behavior based on how her body looked. Um, So, I know. I hate to think what what people would think if they had to, you know. (laughs) Look at me naked. I know. So, um, if you want to know more, you have to read my dissertation or buy the book that I'm going to make out of it in a year or two. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> no, but really, I'll give you I'll give you one tidbit as an example. Um, women who had like sagging or like floppy breasts uh, were considered to be they 
that was considered to be a sign that she was immoral or loose or had Jeez. had sex with lots of men because her breasts were like well used. Oh so God. they would be like, oh no, like you know, I mean, it's not like it was an automatic deal breaker, but if like that was a that if was there a was a couple like if she if she them. had crappy teeth and she had saggy boobs, then it's like mm, no, that's too much for me. Bye. Yeah. Um. So that's just kind of one example. I mean, there's a million other examples of ways that you can look at a part of someone's body and think that you know um, about their character and their behavior. Um, So so this isn't related. I mean, this isn't specifically about about breasts or breastfeeding, but this reminds me of this, something that I must have read recently about increased numbers of women going for like labiaplasties Mm -hmm. who want their their you know labia to look porny yeah right? they want right. their they want their labia to look like vaginas in porn right right and part of it is because a lot of men have absorbed this idea that labia that are longer or are bigger or are different shapes mm-hmm. indicates a woman that has been well used like yes. you say like like Big boobs or boobs that are, like, sagging or whatever indicate a woman's body has been, like, well handled by men. And And she's been around the block. Exactly. So, like, you know, if your labia look not like perfect, you know, porn star vagina, Mm -hmm. then it's indicating that you're a whore, basically. Right. Um, Which is just so horrifying and sexist. Yeah. And it's not... I mean, there's no truth to that whatsoever. No, no. But for whatever reason, that's people's impressions. And so that's this chapter I'm working on right now. I'm working on um, kind of taking apart those uh, perceptions that people have about women's bodies at the time to try to sort of, like, decode, like, okay, well, if they saw, like, a mole here, what did they think? And Mm -hmm. it gets into, like, witchcraft stuff a little bit, too. There was a lot of witches who were – Right. Whose sagging breasts were thought to be a sign that they had engaged in tons of sex with the devil or whatever. Mm, Right. Um. And it's something that they always show, like if they show a witch being burned in in Europe or something, you know, they'll they'll show maybe a drawing of it. She always has these like gross, saggy boobs, mm. even yeah, if she's like not sort old. Of that like pendulous, typical, yeah, yeah, like witch image that you have. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the reasons why breasts were perceived that way. Yeah, um, and there are very, very lurid descriptions of what you want in a breast yeah and you want the breast to be big and full and have tons of milk in it but you also don't want it to you also want it to like look chaste right whatever the f that means how does a breast look so because you know it looks young it looks perky it looks relatively and the nipples aren't like super dark because sometimes your your nipples and your you know get a lot darker when you're pregnant and and postpartum and like that's a totally normal thing yeah um so a totally normal part of being postpartum. You have to be postpartum and have all this milk. Ex- but right. you can't have breasts that look like they're postpartum. That's so exactly. Yeah. I mean, all of these all of these processes, right? Like they, it's not because this woman like was say a woman has like pendulous or large or drooping breasts, right? That's part of being pregnant and breastfeeding. Like, you have right. no control over that. There's literally nothing you can do. Like, your right. boobs are going to do what your boobs do. I mean, yeah. having breastfed now three children, my right. boobs look significantly different. Right. And are shaped different and are different size than they were when I first started having kids. Right. Um, and it just makes me think of the ways that, like, women are expected to perform certain functions in society, but they are also punished for performing those functions. Like, right. women are supposed to be fertile and have children, 
But, like, you also need to somehow get back to that pre-baby body, mm-hmm. like, immediately. Because otherwise, you're, right. you know, fat and lazy and, and you're, you're not taking care of yourself. you're supposed to breastfeed your kids, but your boobs can't look like look you like breastfed your kids. Right, right. Yeah, and so... No, it's and I still see a lot of these problems today, and that's why this kind of thing interests me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I want to make clear um, the connection between, like, the employment agencies and this. Um, that's just kind of a little bit of history that I think is very unknown. There's not a history of employment agencies or anything yeah. like that. Um, and it's the fascinating. thing that's interesting about it is that, uh, you know, my argument is that suddenly wet nurses were being – their bodies are being handled differently and perceived differently. And we see this in art. They'll show wet nurses as like these old hags yes. with drooping boobs and missing teeth and they're holding a gin bottle. And it's like, they're all, they're like disgust. They're like um, yeah. grotesque. Right. And it's like, where did that come from? Because yeah. in other countries, because I'm working on England in, in like France or um, the Netherlands, they show pictures of wet nurses and they're like, they're like beautiful and soft and sweet and yeah. young. And they're holding this little baby. And then the yeah. mother sits there beside her and they're like, besties huh um so i'm trying to figure out where this came from and i think one of the things is that people were having anxiety about like not knowing these people that they were bringing into their home yeah and they were trying to find ways to figure out Mm -hmm. to like suss out like crappy uh nurses or like people who shouldn't have the job people who were not suitable right Yeah. yeah And yeah. one of the ways they did it was by the inspection. Yeah. So. But also through this system of advertising and vetting people through references and all mm-hmm. that. I mean. And I um, mentioned that in, when you they used to just use notice boards, it was really common in the 17th century. They would send them sometimes to like a, you know, someone would say, hey, I'm looking for a wet nurse. Um, you know, go to the blacksmith on Church Street. For information. So then mm-hmm. you'd go to the blacksmith on Church Street and he would do the initial vetting for his mm-hmm. friend who's looking for a wet nurse. Interesting. And if this woman was all like pocky and like had venereal disease, he would be like, yeah, no thanks. Yeah. And so that would be the first like layer of vetting. Um, but if she looked great, he would say, okay, well, here's the address of my friend who actually wants the wet nurse. And then she would go there. And then, right. you know, like, so there were all these different layers of vetting. Mm-hmm. Something that has always interested me in your work is you know in the united states when you talk about wet nurses um at least from my background of course this is certainly not the inclusive history of wet nurses in the united states as you're demonstrating right i mean philadelphia but a lot of times we're talking about enslaved women Mm -hmm. um and one one of the things that i you know i don't know a lot about this but i suspect um is that there's this constant tension within slavery of sort of not trusting your slaves, never trusting your slaves, but also having to look like you trust your slaves. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this weird dynamic where you have to sort of treat that you have to kind of pretend that you love them and, and that you're going to take care of them well and that you trust them and they're part of your family, but you're actually think that they're inhuman. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so something that I find really interesting about this is, is how it can be possible to hate black people, right? think that they are disgusting and and say and and buy into the literature and the rhetoric and the the ideology of slavery but also give your infant to an enslaved woman and ask her to nourish them from her own breasts i mean right i think it gets into a lot of the stuff that you're talking about about kind of this 
fear of who are you bringing into your house? You know, who are you giving this child to? You never quite know. But also you can't, at least in, with enslaved women, you can't, you can't really demonstrate too much that you don't trust them because they're supposed to be part of this fiction that you're a loving family. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. And, and I think, um, a lot of scholars haven't figured that out yet. Mm -hmm. And I think, at least I can say that in Europe they thought it was extremely bizarre that um, right. I mean, it makes it makes no logical sense to mm-hmm. to enslave people because they are subhuman and they can't take care of themselves, but also give your infant mm-hmm. to an, a black woman and say, "Feed this child Care for this thing with here. your right. bodily fluids," right. which I think are disgusting and horrible because right. they're coming out of your body. But yeah. feed them to my yeah, it doesn't newborn. I mean, it doesn't. It makes you think that there was two layers. There was one layer of, oh yeah, we we think you're all subhuman and horrible and whatever. But then there's also that other layer of, well, it's probably fine. Yeah, and and I and I'm seeing that. I see that a lot just with. Yeah, know, white women in London, you know, they're like, oh, my God, um, you know, I don't I want a woman who's married. And then a woman will show up and be like, I was married. And then they'll ask the reference and the reference will say, no, she wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, eh, let's, you know, let's It'll probably be OK. Let's just say she's married and it's fine. Yeah. And so there is like two different levels. There's like what other people know and what you show to other people. Right. Yeah. And then what you're really thinking, which right. is sometimes more pragmatic and sometimes more just like F it mm-hmm. because people are just complex and we just yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that is part of that. Um, and also, in, at least in the 18th century, people believed that that you could pass race on to your nursling. Yes. So yes. that yes. is the strangest part right. about mammies is that pe- they actually thought that you could like yes. blackify someone. Yes. Um, and, you know... There would be people, there would be, like, white children who would visit the UK um, in the 19th century and be talking to whoever. And they would be like, oh, my God, like, you're one of the children who was fed by, like, a black woman. You're you're so pale. Like, how is that possible? Right. And it kind of reminds me of, like, I don't know, like, biracial kids who, like, are lighter than people think yeah. they're supposed to be or yeah. darker than they're supposed to be or whatever. And people are like, oh, my God, like... You know, and, you know, it's very weird and strange mm-hmm. and gross. Right. But um, they were just absolutely convinced that that race was, like, transmittable. Mm-hmm. And that it was a spectrum. Race was a spectrum. And it's like, if it was a and spectrum. And that you could move on. But if it was yeah. a spectrum, why are you enslaving people on one end of the spectrum if you're right. on the same spectrum as them? <laughs> right. It's a very bizarre thing. And they obviously, they didn't have it figured out themselves. Yeah. And that's why we can't figure it why out. Why it's so hard it's for just, historians. Yeah. Yeah, it's just not. It's not rational. Yeah. So. No, it's not. All right. So that's all the boobs for one day. <laughs> <laughs> so if you um, haven't yet, you can review us and rate us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit our website. Um, it's digpodcast.org. Podcast. Mm-hmm. You can get transcripts of the episodes. You can get. Um, I don't know, descriptions of... Lots of pictures. I yep. know we mentioned a couple of, like, engravings that we're going to put up. Yep, so you can um, see what these actual statue halls and things looked like. Right. Um, we have a Facebook group called the Dig History Pod Squad. Just search us on Facebook and ask to join. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a pretty small group, so mm-hmm. it's nice and tame and it's a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest... 
Um, you can email LinkedIn. Us. No, I'm just no. kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, this is about yeah <laughs> networking. Business networking, right? We need to get in LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, start a, a LinkedIn group. Um, uh, if you have, you know, if you want to talk to us about the episode, if you want to ask Marissa questions about her absolutely fascinating research, you can email us at hello at digpodcast.org. We love, love, love hearing from people, you know, as long as you're nice. And we like to read emails on the air too. Yes. So. If you're mean, we will definitely read it on the air and and make fun of you. And mock you endlessly. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. All right. That's it. We will see you next time. Goodbye forever. Bye. Sounds dirty. (laughs) Fill my constant vacancies. I'm Marissa Rhodes. And I'm Sarah. Handley Cousins. It annoys Should me. Should we just do the first name? I always just do first name. Why didn't you do the whole name? Yeah, it doesn't Everybody matter. Everybody knows our lesson. No, yeah, I don't care. So, unlike in England, in the American colonies, holy open apps, girlfriend. <laughs> it's like my brain. Yep. <laughs> All right. Hold on. Boobs. Uh, yeah. Boobs.